Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. Beyond the Mask is also sponsored by crnaeducation.com. CRNAs, you can get the CE credits you need by just going to crnaeducation.com. They have over 100 AANA prior approved credits, all four core CPC modules, and even over 40 pharmacology credits. No subscriptions. It's all online and mobile friendly. Just go to crnaeducation.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out our CE credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to the Beyond the Mask podcast. This is the Anesthesia Alchemy edition, Terry and Gary Unplugged. Join hosts Gary Bridges and Terry Wicks as they deep dive into today's most important clinical conversations in a unique but educational way, in a humorous balance that only they can achieve. Let today's journey begin. Here are Terry and Gary with your next installment of Anesthesia Alchemy. Three, two, one. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Anesthesia Alchemy. Back again, Terry and Gary, unplugged as always, and un- unrained as it turns out most days. Uh, today, we're going to be joined by a good friend of mine, retired Lieutenant Colonel Jim Reed, and together we're going to explore some of the issues that surround second victim phenomenon, which we've talked about, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, a little bit about depression and the risk of self-harm. And I'm your host, Terry Wicks, and I'm joined by my co-host, Gary Bridges, both of us seasoned and unreasoned professionals <laughs> and leaders in the field of anesthesia. Jim, thank you for joining us today. We are delighted to have you with us for our podcast today. What are you doing these days to keep yourself busy? Well, I currently work full-time. Uh, thank you to you both, by the way, uh, Terry and Gary, for the seasoned and unreasoned Uh for letting me come on and talk to you, but I work full-time at the University of Arizona. I'm one of the uh, associate clinical professors there in the nurse anesthesia program, and I have a practice in eastern Arizona at a small little community hospital that is a critical access that's with an all-CRNA group where I do one to two days a week. Uh, I'll be heading out there this evening, in fact, but uh, yeah, that's what I do to keep myself busy these days, and of course, you know, doing all I can to carve out good quality time with those whom I love and specifically my wife, Holly, and then hopefully get to see my kids here real soon. Well, awesome. Terry's right. It's a pleasure to have met you uh, and have you on the show today. Terry told me a little bit about you, Jim, uh, particularly uh, the time you guys were together teaching at UNCG. Uh, So I know a little bit about you, but we want our listeners to have a chance to get to know you a little bit better as we're starting out in the, in the podcast here. So tell us a little bit about your early life and where you grew up. And I understand you started out down in the sunny Southwest. Yeah, I, and I'm still here. Uh, but there was a long break in service in between. So uh, I was born here in Tucson and uh, probably about three miles north of where I currently work at the university. I was born to a 17-year-old unwed mother in 1965, so I'm a little old. And, you know, it's it's interesting that, you know, life kind of took me to several places uh, through a stepfather who was in the Air Force. And so we traveled around a bit, ultimately ended up 
coming back to Arizona while I was in high school to finish uh, high school, lived with my aunt and uncle in southeastern Arizona, lived on a cattle ranch, learned a lot about what work ethic and hard work looks like. And then from there, I joined the Army uh, as a as uh, a medic, and I ended up assigned to the 10th Special Forces Group in Massachusetts uh, as an enlisted man and did some time there, came back off of active duty or came off of active duty and came back to Arizona to go to college. You know, I used the GI Bill. I leveraged that just like a lot of other people did to get uh, my BSN. Uh, while I was getting my BSN, I was still serving in special forces. I was in the 19th special forces group here in Tucson, which is a national guard unit. And then ultimately, uh, ended up getting commissioned, uh, was ROTC distinguished military graduate here at the university of Arizona, received a regular army commission, came back in, was at uh, Brook army medical center was my first assignment. And I, I, I like the joke about this first assignment that they put me at it at the old Bamsey, the one where Lyndon Johnson died. But uh, I had to work at Beach Pavilion, if anybody's ever familiar with that place. And I worked on 43G, which was uh, the female medicine floor. So if you could imagine a guy who was an E6 on a special forces team getting commissioned as a second lieutenant and now working the female medicine floor, um, I was a little rough around the edges for that particular floor. So uh, I... I did my time just like everybody should, you know, especially when you're a second lieutenant, you don't really have a voice. You just go do what you're told. And so I did. And I made great relationships there with my colleagues, as well as the enlisted soldiers I served with. And then I ended up uh, leaving that unit and going to the ICU course and then working in the surgical trauma ICU uh, at Brook Army Medical Center. Learned a tremendous amount there and did another two years in the SI trauma ICU at BAMC. And we were looking to PCS uh, or permanent change of station. We were going to head to El Paso, but uh, the, the fates had other, other plans. My son who was born in 1994, we, we had to do some things to rule him out for neuroblastoma. So I opted to stay in, in San Antonio. And so I took an assignment at the army burn unit and served there for three years, was on the flight team, and I ended up delaying anesthesia training a little bit uh, because everything had to kind of work out with my boy. And But um, subsequently, just kind of did my time there, learned a tremendous amount, flew all over the world picking up burn patients, and then uh, applied to USAGPAN, the, the Army, uh, U.S. Army Graduate Program in Anesthesia Nursing. Couldn't believe I got in, but I did. And I started in June of 1998. And that was, and those, of, uh, those of us who've gone to USAG we understand that you don't necessarily graduate, you survive. <laughs> and so I was one of the survivors out of my class when we had a 50% attrition rate, uh, my class, it was very significant. And so we were probably, I think we were probably the small, one of the smallest classes, at least from its inception. I mean, they were only graduating a few, few people back then, but we were a very small class. Uh, so I, I did my phase two at William Beaumont Army Medical Center, and I was surrounded by just fantastic mentors and preceptors there in the operating room that just took me to another level. I mean, through 
how, how do they take you to another re- level? They, well, they hold you accountable for <laughs> everything that you're supposed to know. And so there's, it's not like they were pushing me, but they were holding me accountable, just <laughs> like every good CRNA preceptor should be, is, hey, these are the standards, and we are unwavering in those standards. And so, uh, and I think that's what really differentiates our profession from many, many others, is that the pride that's taken in upholding those high standards of practice, ethics, and, and things like that. We have an obligation to do that. I ended up finishing up at uh, USAG Pan and did actually a lot better in school than I thought I would. And I think it was just sheer will and effort. I certainly wasn't the smartest person in in my class, not even close. We had some very, very bright people in the class, but I felt like I worked as hard, if not harder than everybody else. So I told my wife when I was in training, I was like, uh, and I told her this several times over the course of my career, but USAGPAN was the one that, that I, I reiterated to her. You're going to go to a funeral or a graduation because <laughs> I am going to die trying. <laughs> and so I, I think you really need to commit yourself to that level, uh, you know, to take yourself in places where you couldn't go otherwise. Uh, I graduated from, from there and went, my first assignment out of anesthesia training was at Fort Hood, Texas, uh, where I was initially assigned to the 126 Ford surgical team was there about nine months. I got this very nebulous call from this place formerly known as Fort Bragg, North Carolina, that wanted me to come and interview for a job. At first I didn't want it. Uh, <laughs> and it was, it was probably about a week before nine 11. And, and I was like, I got my birthday coming up and I, I don't know. I, you know, I had heard about this, uh, this JSOC job, it was Joint Special Operations Command. And a lot of the a lot of the folks that I was at William Beaumont with, they served at JSOC. And so they had kind of identified me as somebody that they might want to interview. And so I ultimately ended up going to interview for the job. And then the towers came down. Mm-hmm. And then so that really did kind of change my motivation uh, at that point, that day. It, was, it changed all of us. Mm-hmm. Every one of us, the three of us and everybody else in the country, you know, we all know where we're at. I was in the operating room at Fort Hood when that day happened and I couldn't wait to get in the fight. So, I mean, that was just, you know, and I, I think that I temper that by saying I didn't want to like use my skill sets in the fight, but I knew that was coming. And so, um, about three weeks after the towers came down, I actually had to deploy with the FST to Kuwait. And it was probably not even three weeks, maybe two weeks after the towers came down and did some, some time there. And then went back to Bragg in early January of 02, got my gear, equipment, everything else. And then by the, by the summer, I was off on my first of, uh, 10 deployments with the joint special operations command. Wow. And then, uh, retired, I, I, and I, you know, there's a lot of time and things like that we can probably talk about, but ultimately did a lot of deployments with JSOC. I ended up retiring in 2011 then bounced around a bit, you know, which a lot of soldiers do when they get out of the military and was at UNC and, and I did some contract work and 
And, you know, I taught with Terry at UNCG. So that's kind of it in a really, in a nutshell, but there's obviously a lot of things to, to fill in there. Well, I want to explore a little bit because, you know, Jim, it's, it's, it seems like you were just following 10 years behind me because uh, when, when I got out of the army as an enlisted guy, um, went back to Iowa and got my bachelor of science degree at the university of Iowa and uh, was decided I wanted to go into anesthesia school and, and made a decision to go back in, in, in the army. And my first duty station was at Fort Sam Houston, Texas at Brook Army Medical Center. And I too was uh, at, at Beach Pavilion, but I <laughs> 42B, which was, um, you know, it was an amazing experience being on 42. Oh yeah. Just step down here. One of the scariest things that happened to me while I was on 42B is I met the Sergeant Major of the army and he was as a second Lieutenant, he was the scariest person I've ever met in my entire life. That's funny. But anyway, you know, one of the things that I wanted just to, to mention as a as a sort of a uh, put things in context is like yourself, every time I told somebody at Brook Army Medical Center or at, at uh, Fort Sam that I wanted to go to anesthesia school, they steered me right towards someone who could help me get that job done. And uh, you and I have some some common some friends, um, Jim Timo, uh, John Scherner, Tim Newcomer. Uh, just lots and lots and lots of it. The anesthesia community is very, very small. But I, I, one of the things I was curious about is, you know, how did you decide in between going to, you know, leaving the military as an enlisted guy and getting your BSN that you wanted to go to anesthesia school? I didn't really know anything about CRNAs, really, until I came back on active duty. And, and it was when I was at, uh, at Bamsey, at Beach Pavilion, I was just observant. And, you know, uh, there was a couple of people that I recall that made an impression on me by their professionalism and just how, I mean, they were meticulous. And one of them was Jeff Roos. I don't know if you know Jeff, but Jeff, he came and did a cardio version or, or, or something one time and was just really confident, uh, knew his stuff, uh, held himself to a high standard. And the other one was, of course, Colonel John Scherner. And I, you know, Colonel Scherner was always the, when when I was working on the ICU, uh, he was always the first person there in the morning to get the keys to the narcotics box. And he was always, you know, you could just tell he was, you remember those old commercials, EF Hutton commercials, when he talks, you better listen. (laughs) That was John Scherner, (laughs) you know, Uh, he was just one of these persons that carried himself in such a way where People, you could just tell people respected him. And it wasn't that it wasn't because he was a Colonel 06, but because he was John Scherner, CRNA, professional extraordinaire. I mean, he was just, and I think probably for me, he was the one that made the biggest impression. The, my first experience was with Jeff doing a, doing a cardio version. And, and of course, you know, I'm like this, stupid second lieutenant i'm like so what is your job again and what do you do and you know i had heard somewhat nebulously about crnas in the past you know when i think i was tdy one time i was in central america i had i didn't know i was working with crna but i was there was an fst down there in honduras that was taking care of a lot of um casualties from nicaragua and this this person i wish i could remember who they were they were awesome and i asked hey, so what's it like to be an anesthesiologist? 
and the reply was, "How the how the f should I know? I'm a I'm a CRNA." Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, and and I think it was that moment in time that I first heard of them. But it was when I got to BMC and actually was able to see CRNA's work and how much respect they commanded within the Army Medical Department and specifically at that facility, I wanted to associate myself with that because what it meant to me, I had already been a, a member of elite organizations. I was in the 10th Special Forces Group, the 19th Special Forces Group, and to me, CRNA was elite, and that's where I wanted to go to. I wanted to be elite. Awesome. Well, Jim, Terry tells me you're a pretty good uh, student in anesthesia training, and you received a couple of well-respected awards. So tell us a little bit about uh, the recognition of the Agatha Hodgins Award, as well as the Ruth P. Satterfield uh, Awards that you received. Well, I told you we had a very high attrition rate. So, you know, it kind of all filtered down to whoever was left. Yeah. Uh, you, you're, bringing back, you're bringing back PTSD for me. Uh, so I have, uh, so do you all know full bird Colonel Joe Kanuski? Oh, baby. Tail goes to Joe. And uh, Rodney Lester was my program. Oh, I know director. Rodney. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, I, I do remember those guys. Um, Joe, uh, Joe administered the only test that I have failed in <laughs> three years of graduate and two years of postgraduate experience. Holy Bless cow. That is, that is very difficult to believe. That must have been an extraordinarily difficult exam, Terry. Yeah, well, I, you so. know. <laughs> but all of us have failed one of one yeah, or, or many of well, his the exams. The thing is, I can always tell my students <laughs> I too have failed. <laughs> you know, it's it's not it, success is dependent on whether you're not, you're willing to stay in the fight. Yep. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think there was a quote by Winston Churchill that I really uh, that that I like to tell my students. It's you know, it, it's not about instant success it's really about your willingness to persevere and stay in the fight so uh and i think uh, you know kind of getting back to what your question was i think that was probably the reason why i was selected as the agatha hodgins award winner as well as the ruth p satterfield award winner which the ruth p satterfield award was the local award for the top graduate and then the agatha hodgins was the the program overarching you sag pan for that particular year. Um, I did very well on the board. So, and I think that might've been one of the determining factors, but I certainly, I, I can tell you, I didn't have the highest GPA in the class uh, if it was all, all only dependent upon that. But I think that the, uh, the faculty kind of took a lot of things into account in determining that, but there's several of my classmates that are just tremendously bright that uh my hat's off to him because in you know some things come easier to people than others you know uh i was pretty good at throwing a football around and things like that but maybe not so much taking these exams but being associated with really really high-end people uh who were academically gifted or otherwise made me take myself to an, a higher level and so those two awards i'm very proud of those uh because i felt like I really earned them. Um, and it didn't come without expense. I mean, we all know it. I had two little kids when I was going to school. Um, they were three and five and a, a wife whom I still adore, but I was very scarce. 
as you know it. I mean, when you immerse yourself, I remember one of my faculty in phase one, uh, a guy named Joel Schrettenthaler, telling me, he said, you just need to be a case-seeking machine. I was like, okay, that sounds like an order to me. And so I just, what I did. And so I never said no to anything. And it, you know, and I went to William Beaumont and there weren't, we were it. We didn't have to share our cases with anybody. And so when the seniors left, it was us. And we didn't have very many out rotations. So we got everyone's full time and attention. And that could be a double-edged sword. And, you know, that's that it comes with being ready every single day for morning report. And that's, I think that's one of the things that USAGPAN is very unique. I, I would assume that uh, uniform services is, is very similar in that, you know, the, the learners are required to show up and give morning report to talk about your cases and basically either, either rise or be eviscerated in public. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and, but I think, that type of stress inoculation, in particular in the military programs, uh, paid dividends down the road for me in a combat environment because I was immune to a lot of the things that were going on external to me in, in the chaos. And, you know, that ability to be able to pick information out of the air and apply it, uh, I, I, that is forged. You know, you don't just that. I mean, it's forged through hard work and effort. And I, I think the military is probably the best at that. And I, I'm going to show my bias, but my program doesn't do it. And I'm pretty sure that most every other program in the country is not requiring that level of, you know, daily form of stress inoculation. Well, you know, it's a uh, interesting, you know, uh, Joel Schrettenthaler was a, uh, PACU nurse when I was um, doing my first tour at Triple Army Medical Center. And um, he actually locked my heels one day in the recovery room for bringing a patient to him that wasn't quite uh, up to snuff. But so, but you know, leadership and, you know, mentorship are a big part of the military community and setting that example and setting those high um, standards and expectations. And so that's, you know, I think. When I first came to UNCG in, in January 2019 and ran into you, um, you know, we hit it off right away. And, you know, we do have that common history of people like John Scherner, Joel Schrettenthaler and those guys um, that, you know, really em embody and are emblematic of that leadership and commitment to that highest standard. Yeah, you know, Terry and I were talking earlier about some of your clinical experiences in the Army as a CRNA and leadership roles early in your career. Um, so let's maybe let, let's kind of start there by telling our listeners a little about your experiences early on as a CRNA in the Army. But before we get there, I, you know, I, I don't want to get too far in this podcast without, you know, pausing for a moment and thanking both you and Terry for your great service to this nation. You know, coming from a family of a number of uncles uh, that were Army and Air Force, uh, there's definitely a special place in my heart and gratitude for every single one of you that have provided, you know, the level of service that you do, uh, both men and women, uh, to this great nation. So thank you. And um, so tell us a little bit about your early experiences. Hey, Gary, let me just say you were worth it, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, thanks for that question, Gary. I, I, 
and, and I really mean that sincerely. I that's so I learned that saying from a World War II veteran when I was thanking him for his service in World War II after he jumped into Normandy and risked his life at 18, 19 years old. God. Uh, he said, Jim, you were worth it. And I, you know, I, w- your welcome's never enough. So no. I was like, hey, it's, it's, you were worth it, man. That's why we do it, right? Yep, we do absolutely. it to preserve, preserve that what has been bought in blood. Yep. And so I think my first, my first assignment right out of, right out of training uh, as a CRNA, I was at Fort Hood, Texas, and I was the brand new shiny CRNA captain read, uh, but I was the chief CRNA of the 126th forward surgical team. So I was, um, I, I basically had to get that, that unit combat ready. That was my job. And, you know, I look back at that time and I wasn't there, but maybe nine months, but it was, it was nine meaningful months, uh, in maybe a little bit longer, but it was a, a great job to have because it was my thing. There's like, Jim, you're in charge of the anesthesia section here. And so I took ownership of it. And when I walked in there, uh, I think some of the supplies and equipment, things like that might've been a little neglected. And of course I threw myself into it. I had a really great, so I was the assigned CRNA to that. And then we had this, we had this system called the Profis system and my Profis CRNA remains a, one of my closest friends, a guy named Brian Gagel. And so Brian and I, uh, we, we were a great anesthesia team, uh, young, very, very enthusiastic. Brian is brilliant. And we took that team to the next level. I ultimately didn't end up deploying with that team, but Brian did. And what we had established as that dynamic duo of CRNAs within that FST was a unit that was combat ready. And, you know, one of the things that I really enjoyed about that experience was working with the enlisted soldiers, the, who were the OR techs, uh, 91 Deltas and the, and the 91 Charlies, which were the LPNs and some of the other enlisted, the medics and things like that. We threw ourselves into that, teaching them everything that we could, because we both recognized Brian and I both, as well as the surgeons that we, I had excellent surgeons there, three very good surgeons, uh, two general surgeons and a, and an orthopedic surgeon who was our commander. But we all recognized that if we were to go to combat with one another, a lot of these medics were going to be operating out of their scope, so to speak. We had to teach them. We had to make them comfortable <clears throat> doing certain things that were going to be assisting us in combat casualty care, resuscitation, and things like that. So I can't remember how many times I let my arms be stuck with IVs and, and things like that. But, you know, it was it was all in the interest of combat readiness. And I think we 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 did a great job with that. And so I never like to take credit for anything by myself, because as a leader, you know that you're, you're only as good as what you invest in your subordinates. And so I felt like all of that we were doing was investing in in our subordinates. And then what's interesting is after I got over to JSOC, I had deployed once to Afghanistan and then the the war in Iraq kicked off. And I remember being at that airport at Saddam International Airport and having to take a casualty 
to the 126 Ford surgical team and waking them up in the middle of the night. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and they, and of course, everybody was great. They, they opened us with open arms and we all cared for the patients and did a great job for them. Attention all certified nurse anesthetists. Are you in need of a reliable and quality continuing education option? Well, look no further than crnaeducation.com. We are an NBCRNA recognized provider offering all four core CPC modules to meet your certification requirements. You can choose from more than 100 AANA prior approved Class A CE credits with 43 articles covering a wide range of anesthesia topics. Need pharmacology CE credits? Well, we've got you covered there as well with over 40 pharmacology CE credits available. All credits are completed online and are mobile friendly. Choose articles worth one, two, or three credits. There's no subscriptions, no hidden fees, just the CE credits you need when you need them. Owned by CRNAs since 2011, you can trust in our commitment to your education. And customer service is always a quick email or phone call or even text away. To sign up and find out more about our education options, visit crnaeducation.com, your partner in continuing education. That's crnaeducation.com. When you and I first met at UNCG back in 2019, we went over had lunch at Hop's Burger <coughs> Bar, which is still one of my favorite places to get a burger. And they have a phenomenal uh, fish sandwich called the uh, Mad Haddock, which if you're ever in town, you can check that out. But anyway... Um, you know, you talked to me when we were at lunch about being deployed 1,500 days out of your last 10 years in the Army, yeah, uh, on active duty, rather. And, you know, I was kind of surprised by that. That is a huge, huge time away from home. Um, and you told me a little bit about what it was like to be a special operations CRNA, some of it good, some of it bad. Um, and, you know, mentioned, you know, having to do things that um, you hadn't been trained to do, I think was the way that you put that. So tell us just a little bit about, you know, what it was like to be, you know, a special operations CRNA, you know, good and the bad. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I, I was just reviewing some of my old ORBs and, or my old ORB and then some OERs and things like that, officer uh, evaluation reports, because the unit is actually putting me in for the a purple heart for an incident that happened on October 17th, 2004. So uh, the guy who was right next to me actually ended up on top of him. He got a purple heart and I just never did pursue it, but we're going ahead and pursuing it now. And we're just getting all the paperwork together and things like that for probably could have earned more than one, but that was the one that really rattled my cage pretty good. But uh, so to answer your question, Terry, you know, one of the things that obviously I came to the job as a special operations nurse anesthetist with a fair amount of tactical experience from my previous life as an enlisted man. But there's a lot that we did in that unit that uh, I did that I wasn't really trained necessarily formally to do in, in training. Uh, and I'll start with the good. Right. And so my my customers, so to speak, in, in the unit that I served in were America's most elite soldiers and sailors. And so they're the special mission units that conduct counterterrorism and things like that. 
And these are people that will break their bodies in the process of trying to get the mission accomplished. That said, I did a lot of pain procedures while I was overseas. Now I did, I did, I did a couple, I did a, a week rotation when I was in training and in pain procedures, but I did a ton of trigger point injections, did epidural steroid injections, just doing everything I could to keep guys in the fight so that they could put their kid on and get out the door comfortably to go in and do what, do what they did with that. You know, you get really close to people and some of the, some of these operators are great friends of mine. There's not a thing I could, I could call scores of them today and ask them for a favor and they would move mountains to help me. And that's the kind of thing that I think that, you know, I had a very unique opportunity. Most CRNAs in the military are somewhat anonymous to their patients. I lived with mine. We ate chow together. Uh, we horsed around together. I learned some Brazilian jujitsu from them and they tied me up in the knots and <laughs> uh, bruised my trachea and my larynx and my thyroid cartilage uh, as they were choking me out. Um, yeah, it made me better. (laughs) It made me to protect my neck. (laughs) So, and, and, you know, and so you weren't really well prepared for that intensity of relationship with the people you were with. I mean, it got to the point when during those 1500 days, and I ultimately, I think I ended up doing somewhere around 1800 days total overseas by the end of my career. We were so value added to them as enablers, mission enablers, that they would not do a mission if we weren't around. And we earned that. And we earned that through blood. Uh, and it wasn't, we, we lost people along the way, or some were horribly wounded. But in the process of that, our surgical team, which consisted of a PA who was our team leader, they were usually special forces qualified physicians assistants, and they were assigned to our unit. And then the rest of us were spread throughout the country at various hospitals and it was a general surgeon or or somebody who's a general surgeon trauma surgeon a crna and an er doctor and so there were a lot of things that i had to do that i wasn't formally trained to do in anesthesia school Uh, a lot of it was being able to provide care at the point of injury so you, you had to learn how to pack your gear to be very effective in a, with a small pack because you had to carry it. So you had to be effective and you didn't carry anything superfluous. And so that was, you know, I, I think that looking back at that, having taken care of people 50 meters from where they got shot, you know, it takes a fair amount of prior preparation in order to prepare for that. And so that's some of the nuts and bolts of that are just knowing your gear, knowing what you can use and what you, what you, and what you should use, and then getting very, very comfortable being uncomfortable. Now that's kind of become very cliche to a lot of people, but operating with a pulse ox and that's it and, and room air and, but then enlisting everybody around you to help you. The one thing I do know about special operators, especially the ones in the military, I don't know what the, the Navy and the Air Force call it, but we had, we had a GT score. 
And you had to have a certain GT score to get certain jobs. Well, in special operations, special forces, rangers, you had to have a GT score of 110. What's that mean? They're bright. They're teachable. And so I will tell one real quick story about, about that, that illustrates that. I, one night we had, uh, we were way out in Gaznia, or we were in Ghazni, and we hit a, a very uh, a high-value target there, uh, barricaded terrorists or insurgents inside with a bunch of women and children. And the SEALs I was supporting that night did not know there were women and children inside. So they were just going to eliminate the threat. They tossed some frag grenades inside. And when they got inside the house to clear the house, they found all these kids. And so they brought them off the target to us. I was set, we were set up in the back of an aircraft and, uh, one by one, they came in, there was a total of six and we stacked them on the floor and I intubated all of them. I think the ER guy intubated one. I, I blew through all those intubations and I carried pediatric gear. They were all less than 10. I carried pediatric gear because I had known what happens, especially in Afghanistan. This is what, this is what, this is what happens. So I, I had peds equipment. So I innovate the first one and I start going down the line and I look at this big seal, this is mountain of a dude. And, and I tell him, I need you to squeeze this bag every six to 10 seconds. And I came back around after innovating the last one and that seal's gone. But here's, here's the crew chief from the aircraft. That big seal, he went out the front of the aircraft, and he, he told me to squeeze this bag every six to ten seconds. And these people are teachable, and they all want to help. And so if you establish that as your baseline, you can accomplish a lot of things. And unfortunately, that night, and this kind of lends itself to what we're going to talk about later, one by one, those kids died. Uh, they, were, they were in such bad shape. I mean, they were all innovated without drugs. Um, and one by one, they succumbed to their wounds. Uh, but they came to us all with vital signs. And so, you know, um, I remember looking out after that, and I don't know if this is the appropriate time to talk about it, but I remember we, we, we took them all off the, off the aircraft and we covered them up with space blankets next to the air airfield. And, you know, we weren't going to take them anywhere. This is their home. They need to be buried here, get them, repatriate them back to their village and I remember seeing the feet coming out of the, the uh, out from underneath those those space blankets, and and I and you know, and it wasn't the first time I had ever made note of that, because they were about the same size as my kids. It was, I, in fact, that was one of those things that it 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 really just draws the commonality humanity together when you look at shoes and feet. And I remember going to the the Holocaust Museum in D.C. and seeing all the shoes on display. And I remember, you know, a previous deployment, seeing a kid that was horribly wounded, and I'm looking down at the shoes, and I'm like, that's the same size as my son's. And so, you you know, it, it, it really does humanize what we do. And so that kind of leads me, leads me to that, the next part of that question, some of the bad things that I had to do that I wasn't trained to do. Specifically, it was 2006 in Ramadi, which was the capital of the Anbar province. Very, very dangerous place. If you've ever seen the movie American Sniper, it was where a lot of that took place. The bad guys had gotten really good at putting a hurt on us. Now, we were able to kind of, I was there in 04, and we had a lot of indirect fire problems then, which is what got me in 04. 
But then we were able to kind of get that more under control. But the threat at that point was IEDs in the road. And what they had gotten there, one of their tactics that they had employed was putting accelerants in with the bombs. And so when our soldiers or Marines would run over one of these bombs, uh, it would detonate. It would incapacitate everybody inside if it didn't outright kill them. And then it would start a fire. And so one night in particular, a group of Marines were very, very badly wounded and from uh, that type of event. And the only way I can describe it is we, we got probably four or five of these guys at a time and they were all dying and they were bor- burned all over their bodies, fourth degree or deeper. And that, the only way I can describe it is their bodies just didn't know they were supposed to be dead because they were strong. They were tough young men. They were in the top physical condition. And so I, I, my, my, my surgeon and I, this guy, Mike Gooden, whom I love, he's a, a dear friend of mine. Uh, we had operated on so many people that deployment. We, I had innovated these kids and, you know, we're at a Charlie Med in, in Camp Ramadi. And Mike's, you know, we're just, we're, we're both very deeply faithful guys. And what do we, what do we do now at this point? And we confided in one another. We just got to get them out, get them out of their misery. And so that's when, you know, you, we know what to do to make people comfortable as a CRNA. And so you just drop syringes of fentanyl and help ease them to where their ultimate destination is. And so uh, I remember talking to Terry about that and I still struggle with that because I was not trained to do that. I wasn't trained. And, and in many ways it feels like euthanasia, but it was the humane thing to do at that time. I don't regret it, but it's a guilt that I've carried ever since those, those times that, you know, this is not why I'm here. I'm not here to do this, but you know, I'm, at that point, I'm a commissioned officer. I major, senior major, lieutenant colonel. Significant combat experience. People look to me to do the right thing, and that was not lost on me when I did that. There were a lot of junior medical providers there that, when we weren't there, they had to make these decisions on their own, and it was daily for us then. It was daily, and so, you know, given given the the extent of those injuries that were non-survivable. And I, I'm not going to paint the picture of why it was non-survivable outside of the burns, but there were other wounds and things like that, that lent themselves to non-survivability. The right thing to do at that point was just to make them comfortable and, and send them off to the next life. And, um, I struggle with it. It's, uh, after my son joined the army in 2012, he came home from NC State and said, Dad, I'm joining the Army. I was like, are you crazy? <laughs> I was having significant nightmares of that event, but looking down and seeing my son's face. Now, you know, it's one of those things that ebbs and flows. I mean, I haven't had a nightmare in, in a little while. Every now and again, they sneak back in. And that's why I think I've the fall for me is always the real, the summer and fall were always the busy times for me. And so that's why I always try to get away and just go do some alone time out in the woods or something like that. But, um, 
I hope that answers your question. You know, there were other there were other opportunities, and I'm sure I'm I'm definitely not the only one that's that's had that experience. Yeah, no, man, that's heavy. Um, I can't even imagine going through that. All right, well, so let's pivot a little bit more, Jim. And you know, I understand you were in a leadership role again back at Womack Army Medical Center, and from what 2007, 2010, and you were also involved in education of nurse anesthetists, uh, students as well. So what, what can you share with us about that time in the military? What's interesting about that time, yeah, I was the senior clinical instructor at uh, Womack Army Medical Center at uh, Fort Liberty, formerly known as Fort Bragg. And I was probably really tough. In fact, the people who I staffed, who are now my really good friends, one of which is now the program director of USAGPAN, uh, he would tell me that when he was with me, he would tell his wife, he's like, oh, my God, I'm with Colonel Reed tomorrow. And she would be like, oh, that guy, because he would come home. Yeah, he would come home exhausted because uh, I was relentless on these kids uh, at the time. And I think a lot of it, Gary, was born out from the experiences that I had in combat. And I had this sense of urgency. I had to get them ready. Because then, at in the late 2000s, 2010 ish, and you know that that time frame, they were not allowed to grow into the job. They graduated and they had to be combat ready, because of the the op tempo. So we did have a sense of urgency within the program to, I guess, bring them through the crucible it, so that they could hit the ground running. And I think probably one of the, the greatest compliments of my life was not one, but several of my former students, people that I helped train, went to war. And during their wartime experience, they emailed me and said, I heard your voice in my head today. And it made a difference. And so, you know, while the methods at times, I think, were pretty harsh and some would, if you were on the outside looking in, maybe you might have thought that they were somewhat ruthless, but they were <laughs> purposeful in that we all, all of us there at Womack, because it was the most highly deployed place in the, in the U.S. military, in fact, had that sense of urgency because of what we were seeing in combat, not just me and the JSOC guys, but everybody who was stationed there who were going and staffing the caches and the FSTs and places like that, we were seeing just incredible numbers and the types of wounds that people could survive from. And so we really wanted to sharpen these folks to a, to a very sharp point so that they could be effective when they hit the ground running. And it, and it just, it keeps me that it, what grounds me is, as bad as it ever was for me, it was nothing compared to what our predecessors as CRNA saw in Vietnam, mm -hmm. in World War II, in Korea, and other places like that. You know, for our listeners who maybe never been deployed or been in the military, um, you know, you shared uh, some experiences when you were deployed that, you know, I think arguably have been identified as the antecedents to post-traumatic stress disorder and depression and second victim phenomenon. Um, so, 
you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, as you approached and, and went through retirement, you know, what it was like to, you know, transition back to, you know, the civilian life out of the military and, you know, a little bit about how uh, you got involved with an organization that provides healthcare resources in austere environments. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. I It was probably getting out of the military. It didn't exactly end on my terms. I ended up getting injured on a jump and had a pretty severe neck injury. And at that point, there was no more wearing a helmet and things like that. So opted to retire. It was really tough to get out. I, one, I think the biggest thing was, especially after all the wartime experience that I had, is people just didn't under, I couldn't relate to anybody and I didn't feel like people could relate to me. And I think a lot of that was just, just me ended up being one of the first guys in my cohort to get, to retire from the army. You know, one day you're, you feel like you're really important. You got this top secret clearance. You've got access to all these things, um, at, and, and a mission. And then the next thing I'm working at a hospital that it's just really about moving meat, making money. Um, and it felt very impersonal. You know, it ended up being, I, I love the people at that hospital. They, we all became great friends, but it took a while for me to not have that kind of, well, I never acted out on it. I just felt like there's this not people, I wasn't connecting. Uh, I, I could not find a way. It was very difficult for me to find a way to remission myself because I had such a great mission prior and it, and it's gotta be more than about just meeting the bottom line of the hospital. But in reality, it's really about meeting the bottom line of the hospital (laughs) and, and where, where you find your mission, honestly, is those, is those things that are outside of the hospital. And for me, I think my biggest epiphany was I went back to Womack as a contractor during the height of the sequester and I got laid off. And so that was a big slap in the face, you know, an organization that I served for 27 years. My kids were a part of it. And my son was in the army. My daughter was getting ready to go to West Point. I was laid off from the very organization that I had missed and served. And it was, it was, it was just what it was because the government was cutting back and I was the new guy. So off I went. And it was about three weeks before Christmas that it happened. And so it was a slug right to the gut. And probably for the first time in my life, I got depressed. I mean, maybe I had depression before, but this was palpable. I mean, I really felt like the world got kind of dark. But how I clawed my way out of that was I remissioned myself to do some veterans advocacy work. And... You know, these were people that I really cared deeply about. And so I got involved in doing some some work uh, with a veterans organization and lobbied the House and the Senate in D.C. for a suicide prevention bill, uh, spoke out on veterans uh, suicide as well as uh, employment, proper employment, things like that, uh, was on several national news shows uh, and radio shows to include NPR Megan Kelly's shows on CBS Evening News, talking about the plight of veterans transitioning out of the military. And it helped me. Um, and at that point, I started to think about, all right, what's next? Because 
I've got to do something. And so I had, you know, with this neck injury, I was, I was really struggling to do 48 plus hours and call and everything else in the, in the operating room. It was, it was very difficult for me to keep my head on a swivel. I, I, I like to think that there's different types of CRNAs out there. I'm not a sitting one, right? I'm a standing CRNA. And I think a lot of the, a lot of that was, I was trained to never sit down in the OR. And so you, you rarely see me even today sitting down in the OR. And so what did that translate to for me was physically, I was struggling with this neck injury and, you know, a lot of, a lot of pain and things like that. So I was like, what can I do that I can still be valuable to the profession and, you know, still keep the, the identity as a CRNA? Well, I can teach. So I started looking at ways to get the DNP because that was the only way you could do it. And that's when I ended up at Duke to earn that DNP because they didn't give that thing away. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I promise you that. <laughs> yeah. So, but that, you know, that was kind of, kind of that time that, you know, I was still doing really, really heavy into the veterans advocacy work. And my daughter was actually, she was at West Point then. And one of the things that I did, I like on a very personal level was one of the guys that I had, taken care of in Ramadi in 2006, he lived in Maryland. And when when Heather was having her, she was her plebe year, they had the army Navy game up in Baltimore. I called this guy up. He's a double amputee. Plus he had some other issues. I called him up and I'm like, Hey, you want to go to army Navy game? Sure. Well, we went to seven in a row together. Wow. And so I love that game. And I, I miss Ryan. He's such a good guy. And, um, it was great to to have my family see tangible evidence of the work that we did. Now, I can tell this story to many people, and they will never understand it. But you guys will. After I had given him about 10 units of pack cells, the whole blood started coming in. And I had, I had gotten enough volume expansion in where I could get a brachial artery arterial line in, right? When he got to me, gentlemen, he was so badly wounded. He was looking at me with a heart rate of 194, asking me for morphine, but he wasn't bleeding. Mm. The, the, the right lower extremity was traumatically disarticulated, gone. And the left was barely there. And there was all kinds of other issues going on. Okay. So I'm painting a pretty bad picture. That, you know, got a line in his neck, got him to sleep, and then started going to work, resuscitating him. Uh, lots of blood, calcium, things like that. And after about 10 units of pack, the hole started getting to me. And the hole, that what they did was in the middle of the night in Ramadi, they got on this, on this loudspeaker and said, hey, we need type O blood. Come to the dispensary. And these kids would line up outside of that dispensary or outside of that that clinic we were where there was an operating room to give a piece of themselves. And so I got an A-line in him and I drew a gas. His base deficit was minus 32. Holy God. Oh wow. Jeez. Yeah. Wow. And so we ended up giving him another 40 units a hole that night. So grand total of about 50. He left there. His base deficit is corrected to zero. He was not anemic. He wasn't bleeding anymore. 
He was normal thermic. And whole blood, man, is a life saver. <laughs> that kid would have never made it with component therapy. Mm. No. And he's now functional. He lives on his own. He, he's involved in all kinds of stuff. And it's just a testament to the nature of how different combat anesthesia is to what you see in your hospital. You know, and I can tell you, I've probably given 500 plus units of whole blood, and I've never seen an, a, a single appreciable transfusion reaction. If it's been type specific or O, just haven't seen it. Yeah. So it's, um, it, it's really, uh, you know, I, I know I kind of wove that in into what I did after, after the military, but it very much, for me, there's, there's no delineation. Mm -hmm. You know, I still feel like I'm a soldier. And I still have a mission. I never resigned my commission, so technically I am still a soldier. Um, but Don't tell them where you are. <laughs> oh, they know. <laughs> I mean, they know. <laughs> they don't want an old broke down guy like me, anyways. But, um, but nonetheless, you know, that remissioning of myself was probably the thing that started the corner for me to heal um, from and. And I got to tell you, there's, there's times when I feel like I take steps back, you know, as far as the post-traumatic stress is concerned and the survivor's guilt and things like that. It's something that my wife and I, we work on routinely, or she reminds me um, in her own eloquent way that, <laughs> hey, you're being a butthole and, <laughs> um, you know, you need to fix yourself. Yeah. And um, she's so strong and she's been... She's been great. And, you know, I'm going to expose a little bit of that soft underbelly when you start to, you know, there were, there was a time when I was, I was pretty bad, maybe not, a, but I was really angry and I wasn't always the nicest guy at home. And I'm ashamed of that. And I wish I could hey. have been better. I wish I would have done better. But my, I think my daughter asked my wife, why do you stay? when I was just really, really struggling with the PTSD and to her credit, she said, uh, well, if he had cancer, would you expect me to leave him? Wow. And Strong. I, you know, I will spend the rest of my life making it up to her and I fall short routinely, routinely, pretty much daily, but she is a strong, I mean, she's an ER nurse, way stronger than me, way stronger. But, uh, that's the kind of loyalty that I have. I, I hit the lottery when I asked that one to marry me. Out of all the other ones that maybe could could have been out there somewhere, not that there was a lot, but you know, but but the fact is that I'm here today. I was been able to do some of the things that I've been able to do in my career, or otherwise, and then afterwards get on the road to healing because I had somebody like that in my corner who supported not just through the war, but through anesthesia training and all the other jobs where I was scarce. And I'm thinking that I'm seeing some nods on your, your, <laughs> with you guys too. Yeah, man. I think we hit the lottery. Yeah, I, think I know I did. One of my students said uh, quite eloquently an uh, Alabama phrase. I outkicked my coverage. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fight! I'm fighting above my weight class. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Yeah, I got responsibility way above my grade. That's <laughs> yep. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, man. Well, we what... wouldn't be where we are without those gals. Oh, absolutely. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Well, let's take that a little bit further, Jim, you know, with, with respect to the PTSD and in those dark periods, um, certainly after leaving the military, kind of expand a little bit more on uh, the experience itself, like for yourself, and then what was that pivotal moment that you decided to go and seek out treatment to get help? Because I think, you know, um, there's probably a lot of our listeners that are wondering, like, you know, I'm going through these dark times, nothing's going away, it's getting worse, and you know, heaven forbid people start contemplating suicide and stuff like that. And especially this time of year, which is right. really why we wanted to do this podcast this at this point because of the holidays and family and stuff. So kind of share with our listeners about that. Yeah, I, Gary, I think for me, it was the, just this uneasy feeling that I had the anger and the, and, and the lack of true transitioning that, that was going on for me. Um, I did seek psychotherapy. Uh, I talked to somebody. I went on. I, I, I went on an SSRI for about eight months. You know, I do re- think it was helpful, at least for me to get some clarity, to allow the psychotherapy to to really take hold. And the guy that was my therapist, this guy Bob, was wonderful. You know, he had, was not a veteran himself, but he understood, and he was vested in me and he listened. I mean, that's what they get paid to do, but he offered some really great wisdom, but he wasn't quick about it. You know, he peeled away the layers of the onion and along that way, he, he asked me, he figured out what made me tick. And in a lot of ways, what makes me tick is the same thing that makes a lot of people tick is, you know, we want to be, we want to earn our keep, right? We want to be self-sufficient. We want to be somebody who, earns a living, you know, earns their way through life. And that was a big thing to me growing up without a father and kind of bouncing around. I have always had this chip on my shoulder. I had something to prove. I didn't have the best relationship with my stepfather and I'm not blaming anything about that, but we did not have a good relationship at all. Um, and I always had felt like I had something to prove. And so, you know, he kind of figured that out and we talked about it. But ultimately, he ended up asking me this question, a series of questions. He said, so you value earning your way through life, earning your keep, right? Yeah. He goes, you value being able to take care of your family and do a good job with that. I'm like, absolutely. And and so in the process of that, the military service has become very important to you for you to earn your keep. And to me, the military was everything because it provided me limitless opportunity that was merit-based. All I had to do was just get in the line and do the things that I needed to do. And so we got to the point where he, he was giving me all these questions of affirmation, the things that I valued, the things that, you know, that I thought were, were very important into my psyche. And then what he said to me next was, he said, so you, 
you value all these things. You value earn, earning your keep. You value earning your way through life. Well, don't you think you earned what you feel by doing your duty? Hmm. And it was like this giant light. The only thing that was missing was the music, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, and it, 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 it really struck a chord with me. And I have used that on many, many people since, right? Because I value the duty. I mean, I wouldn't want to have been anywhere else in the whole world as bad as it was at, was at times. And I will tell you, I have had several, if not many, equally heinous things happen in my life as a CRNA outside of combat. And then there were times, you know, where just in the course of your work, you, you see and you're, you're involved in tragic situations, mm -hmm. right? And nobody rises to the occasion. We all fall back on our training. I feel I was well-trained. I am, if not me, then who? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, every one of us who does this job knows that feeling. And outcomes are not oftentimes up to us. I mean, we do the best we can and we do what we were trained to do. But then there's a lot of a lot of things that were out of our control. So, you know, I think that doing our duty and earning what we feel is important. For me, what I still struggle with is my inability to feel. It's really tough to break down those barriers. I, I just I don't feel much. And I think that's a casualty that I still deal with. Speaking of casualties, um, you know, you and I have had this conversation in the past about the number of number of separated veterans that take their own lives uh, every day. Um, I, you, you know, the number I don't. But, you know, tell me, do you feel like some of the work that you've done, the media appearances, <laughs> the volunteer work, um, the support animals that have have helped? Do you think we've really turned the corner on veteran suicide or is there more to be done? There's much more to be done. The numbers, and it depends on how the, when you look at things statistically, um, have gone from 22 to 20, but there are some that maintain that it's closer to 40 a day. And so when you start to look at those numbers, as far as veterans are concerned, the, it, it is really easy to extrapolate out caregivers, right? Especially post-pandemic, people who saw what what they did, and and honestly, the system itself has become so impersonal, uh, where despair is easy to come by these days. And so, um, I think that what we have done has helped to a degree. But I think in a lot of ways, the, uh, those of us who are CRNAs or those of us who are in, in healthcare, we're isolated as well. The only people that understand us is us, yeah. right? And I don't know that we do a good job at looking after one another. I mean, I think we, we, we speak to that a lot. But, you know, with departments being short-staffed the way they are and workloads being what they are, and, and there's only so many hours in a day. Right. And I think it's incumbent upon the individual to recognize what their limitations are and get help 
but the problem is that the system itself doesn't enable that, right? Because hey, we've got schedules. We're, we run our we run our departments very lean, you know. And and this is just me making big overarching statements about the system. But I I would venture to say that there are fair, there are very few places where that actually take the time to debrief tragic or or critical events, and then more importantly, do the follow up that's necessary. I mean, you you might be able to debrief it check that box, but then whatever follow-up might be necessary. And if there's a problem that exists with uh, an individual or a group of individuals, where's the flexibility in, in the schedule to allow them to seek help during a work day? You know, these things just don't exist. And uh, I think it, I, you know, I know the AANA does a great job with wellness. Uh, I think the AANA does more then probably most, if not all other professional organizations out there looking, looking for ways to support us as nurse anesthetists in, in, in this fight. I know, you know, people who've really struggled with um, addiction and things like that. And our organization has stepped up for them mm-hmm. and always steps up for them. You know, we all know what, what happened to Angie's husband, Right. Uh, Angie and I, we, uh, Angie Munn, yep. we, we talked about ways where we can collaborate. You know, I know she's been very busy, you know, past president. We talked about ways where maybe she and I and others with these types of experiences can start to add to the conversation to try to move the ball forward, not just for veterans in the veteran space, but also uh, for caregivers, providers, and our own CRNAs in general. I would venture to say there are very few of us who've been practicing for an appreciable amount of time that don't know people that have su- succumbed to addiction and or are no longer with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the root causes of that are depression and or uh, post-traumatic stress and survivor's guilt and things like that. There are a lot of things I think we can do um, that are off-label in their use, but have shown great efficacy in terms of treating these things. And I'm kind of going off, but just rein me in if you, if, but I, I, I will say that, you know, ketamine therapy has, has shown great promise. There's a lot of CRNAs that are practicing, uh, those types of procedures on people, IV ketamine therapy, uh, psilocybin. And one of the ones that, that, kind of sprung forth out of the special operations community, in particular, probably the most elite army unit on the planet, was the Stelle ganglion block mm. uh, in the treatment of post-traumatic stress and resetting the sympathetic nervous system and stopping that re-entry pathway of that post-traumatic stress phenomenon that exists. And so all of these things are things that CRNAs are not just adept at. We are the experts at it. And I think that, that, you know, we can, we can provide a lot. I, I myself am, am looking to try to get trained to do stellate ganglion blocks to offer those here in our local community, as well as out in Eastern Arizona, where we're the only providers out there to be able to address post-traumatic stress, not just for vets or even, but for the general public. I mean, and the numbers are staggering. Uh, the number of people that undergo that uh, experience trauma on a yearly basis. And the, the data is 
very promising as far as that that block is concerned. Eighty percent curative after one injection. Man, that's, that's incredible. pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Jim, you bring up the thing with um, the debriefs and stuff, almost like critical incident management. And, you know, it's one of the pl- things that, you know, when I was on the practice committee for AENA back in, geez, 2010, I think. Um, and I remember I was charged with reviewing the document of, or the position statement on awareness under anesthesia. And so I'm going through this and, you know, updating all the references and stuff. And I'm like, well, what about the CRNA that's involved? Something like this is tragic, right? I mean, this is another, you know, thing that it's never intended, but it does happen. And, um, so what do we do for those CRNAs? And, and really at that point, there was really not a whole lot of resources specific to critical incidents for, for CRNAs. And then it started to grow. There was Lynn Reed was actually a practice committee chair and staff and then we had uh, Maria Van Pelt, who was doing it on students, looking at uh, sort of that PTSD, if you will, or second victim. And uh, so how do we manage these people? I remember the first meeting we had, I think it was in Las Vegas, we invited a patient that was aware under anesthesia. And we thought, ah, we might only get 10 or 12 people show up, maybe 30 tops, you know. The room was full with over 140 people in there that wanted to hear this stuff. So we knew right away it was a huge problem that people wanted help with, right? And so I know at our facility, I started to implement a lot of that stuff. And, and I think to your point is you do the debrief, it doesn't stop there. There are check-ins that go on not only weeks, sometimes months, um, and to be able to extrapolate what resources those individuals need because everybody's managed differently and they deal with the stress differently. And, and that's one of the things that Terry and I have been kind of pushing through this series is, Rather than wait for an event to happen, proactively start implementing programs and grow that program. And the resources that the ANA does provide is a lot of structure, which is great. Because you don't want to be caught flat-footed after, you know, I can't tell you in the leadership roles the mistakes I made to my CRNAs that I wasn't prepared to be able to manage those kind of events to help them through it. And so, I mean, you're preaching to your your preaching everything that we've been talking about. So, you know, so with that, I know there's been a lot of important work that's been done to increase the awareness around the veterans needs, as well as addressing um, crisis of veteran suicide and support healing. So what else do you think really needs to be done to support both, you know, as you've, you've brought up military and civilians here in A's in crisis and all of our soldiers that are returning to civilian life, which I can't tell you how many times I've heard story after story. That's a real challenge in itself, um, being like completely independent to now you're almost micromanaged in everything you do. So you're almost like shackled, if you will. Um, you know. So what are some of the things that you think, as well as contacts, that you think are, are excellent resources to help these individuals out? So it's a huge thing to take on. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'll just start with the veteran space. Yeah. And I think in the, in the veteran space, shared sacrifice is important, right? We, we understand what shared sacrifice is. Those of us who've been, been in the military, those of us who are veterans, you know, I think that, uh, and this is just Jim, if I was king for a day, I, I, I think we, we need national service again. Uh, I do think that, uh, 
we lost something when that went away. And it doesn't have to be in the form of military service or whatever, but the, the idea that there should be some, to me, responsibilities of citizenship. And some of those things are to serve, serve something other than yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And I think when you see a lot of these these countries that have that, they well, they may disagree over certain ideologies or otherwise, they are very much the very unified people, right? I, and I'm not advocating for, you know, and again, I'm nobody. I'm not very important. I don't have a, I don't hold public office or anything like that. But I think that in many ways, uh, we lost something. And I've only served in an all-volunteer military. So I don't know what it was like to, to serve in a time when there was compulsory service. But I do think that, you know, I am in education. I think that from my observations from from that experience, as well as being in the military and having children of my own that served, I do see oftentimes uh, people tend to get very, very egocentric and think of themselves first before they think of themselves of the collective of we, the United States of America, etc. Now, that's probably going to be an unpopular thing. I know it would be. But I think in the process of that, We'll ha we would have less of these fiefdoms being created and or and or people who feel somewhat marginalized or otherwise because they would have a home with through collective shared experience. And whether that be the Peace Corps or what they used to have, the Civilian Conservation Corps and and military service or something, some sort of nationalized healthcare system, you know, that where people go and they they do a year or two. And something to bring us together, because right now I just see everybody going in all kinds of different directions. And I think we've lost a lot of our commonality in that. Now, that's a that's a really big statement for me to, to make. What can we do specifically with vets nowadays? As we get further and further away from the war, I, I think a lot of these things, time will heal that. I hope to goodness that we don't get ourselves into another one anytime soon. Um, but you know, that's, we need to be ready to do it at any time. But I, I think that if we had more people that were making these kinds of decisions that actually served and had some skin in the game, like mm -hmm. maybe them or their, or their, their kids, then maybe we wouldn't make those kinds of decisions to do, to make rash, rash decisions or otherwise. And then, you know, applying what Colin Powell said, get in, finish your mission and then get out. You know, there's a, and again, I'm not really answering your questions because I, I think that these, these problems are giant. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think on an individual level, if you know a vet, just listen to them and or ask them about their experience and allow them to relate to you what they experienced. Just like I did. I, I told you to, and this audience in general, probably the, the single most traumatic thing of my time in when I had to do what I had to do with those young men in, in Ramadi. That is what I will carry the rest of my life. But I feel like I'm strong enough to be able to tell you that and that we're mature enough that nobody's going to judge me for it. You know, I look at it as a parent as well. If that would have been my child, I would have wanted somebody who cared enough to do that 
but who would also lament having to do that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I tell those stories, get it out there, recognize that substances don't help you. Alcohol, drugs, or any of those other things are impediments to healing. I think we need to, we need to really call out self-medication for what it is. And, you know, CRNAs are known to be pretty good partiers, <laughs> right? Yeah, and I heard that. I mean, yeah. And, and quite frankly, I can't keep up with most of them um, <laughs> when it comes to that stuff. But, it, you know, it's, there's one thing to have a good time, right? There's an, it's an entirely different thing to mask what's going on underneath, if there is anything going on underneath. And if there is, then we need to be good friends and colleagues and confront our peers uh, in a constructive way. I've had to do that a couple of times in my career. I've actually, and, and one guy doesn't talk to me anymore. The other ones do, but I cannot sit back and watch people engage in self-destructive behaviors and not do something as one. I'm, I'm your friend, I'm your colleague, your brother and sister in arms, you know, whatever it is. I, I think we have to be strong enough if you see something, say something and, you know, start with the individual, have the courage to start with the individual. And then from there, elevate those resources, which we have, we have as a profession. I know that it has helped people and I know that it has insulated people. Uh, and we have to recognize it's one, it's prevalence, which is quite common and two, what the warning signs are and then get involved. And so that's, that's, Step number one. And I think what we could do, you know, I, what, what I see us having within this organization as CRNAs in general, we have the, we have that carved out for the substance abuse piece, but what is not as well known. And I don't know if it really exists. It's just, it's the other mental health piece, mm -hmm. some of the wellness pieces, right? I mean, do we have to go all the way that direction to get the help or is there something in between? you know, that it can be either done locally, statewide, or otherwise. As it is, I mean, we have made mental health as a, as a, as a reimbursable medical expense, almost nothing. That's why nobody wants to go into it right. anymore. Yeah. And so, I mean, we're talking about huge issues that we have not prioritized as a society, as a, as governments, and certainly as insurance companies, because, you know, if we can't stick a device in somebody yeah. and bill for that, <laughs> then it's really not worth doing, right? Right. But, I mean, these are just all things that I think these are some tough conversations that need to be ha had at all levels, you know, uh, locally, statewide, and certainly within our own, own government, how we do business. We've got to prioritize mental health. And, you know, I, I don't know where where we go with that. I mean, the streets are littered with people yep. who, who don't have access or who have fallen through the cracks, but that is nothing compared to those who are, who are struggling in their own homes and relationships and things like that are, are yet again, another casualty. Well, um, Jim, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be with us and, and to tell your story. Um, and to share your story with, you know, all the folks that are going to be listening. Um, and we're extremely grateful. And I, and I, I 
I would be remiss if I let this go by without saying personally, thank you for being my mentor at UNCG and being the guy that answered my text at eight o'clock at night when I couldn't get an exam soft to look <laughs> to post my exam. <laughs> Appreciate that. I'll never forget that. So anyway, folks, thank you for listening uh, for this episode of Anesthesia Alchemy, Terry and Gary Unplugged. Uh, we appreciate your engagement and support. It means the world to us. And please share um, share this podcast with your friends, uh, with your this episode, with your colleagues, and um, especially if you know someone that might benefit from from hearing these discussions. We know that you know knowledge and collaboration uh, in, in nurse anesthesia is going to make us all healthier and uh, better productive. Uh, professional. So again, your feedback is invaluable. Uh, let us know what kind of podcasts you want to hear from us. We've got some stuff coming up we think you might be interested in. So come on back and see us again. We'd love to hear your thoughts and have a great uh, holiday season. Yeah. And Jim, again, I want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts uh, for joining us today and sharing your invaluable insights and experience. Your contribution to the conversation on veterans and PSD has been uh, truly exceptional. Um, to our dedicated listeners, we want to express our sincere gratitude for being part of Anesthesia Alchemy, Terry and Gary Unplugged. Your engagement and support mean, as Terry has said, does mean the world to us. We're trying to put content out that you have an interest in and uh, keep it current and relevant. And we hope today's discussion has been extremely enlightening and thought-provoking. Uh, you know, and as we conclude on this episode, we'd like to ask you for a small favor, as Terry has pointed out. Please consider sharing our podcast with many colleagues, friends, anyone in your network who might benefit from discussions like we've had today. We believe in the power of knowledge and collaboration in advancing the field of nurse anesthesia. And don't forget to rate us. Leave us a comment on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback we take seriously in shaping future episodes for you. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on topics you'd like to, uh, to explore in upcoming podcasts. So once again, thank you, Jim. And thank you to our listeners for your time and dedication. We look forward to contributing to this journey of learning and growth together. Until next time, take care and be well. Hey, CRNAs, it's time to simplify your continuing education. Welcome to CRNAeducation.com, your trusted provider for CPC core modules and a plethora of Class A CE credits. You can explore 43 detailed articles covering various anesthesia topics, all from your favorite device, anytime, anywhere. And with over 40 pharmacology CE credits, meet your state board requirements effortlessly. Whether you need a few credits or everything to recertify, we have what you need. Just complete your credits online without any subscriptions or recurring charges. You can trust in our 100% CRNA-owned platform, established in 2011, ensuring you receive the best in customer service and educational content. Ready to learn? Go to crnaeducation.com, making continuing education easy and accessible. And don't forget that support is always a quick email or a text or phone call away. To sign up and learn more, just go to crnaeducation.com. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning 
an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.